Good morning. My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church. Um, Again, I want to highlight a couple of those things that you heard earlier. The Weekender. Uh, again, The Weekender. Yeah, woo, The Weekender. So The Weekender is, uh, again, going to be happening August 18th and 19th. So we're just going to be together for about two hours. We're going to share a meal on Friday. Then we're going to come back together on Saturday. We're going to share a meal that morning, and we're just going to get to know each other. And so if you are considering this to be your home church or you're thinking about it and you want to learn more about that, this is not a commitment to immediately join as a member or what we, we use the term partner here. Um, but this is simply you saying, hey, I want to learn more. I want to get to know you guys. So, um, and we want to get to know you. So that's what it's all about. Um, and then again, sum, summer nights happening this Wednesday, going to happen right here. You are all invited. We'd love for you to join us, uh, that we are walking through a book, but we will be recapping that book. Um, and similar to me recapping the announcements you've already heard, it's just because I want you all, all to be there. So, um, I, I, and I, this is part of gospel community is part of like not just uh, being a place, uh, church is way more than just an event that we attend. Amen? Church is a people we belong with and a people we partner on mission with as we behold God, his values, his truth, what matters most to his heart. We align with that together and suddenly we find ourselves shoulder to shoulder with people who are able to remind us of the goodness of who he is even when we walk through difficult situations. And in this world, Jesus promises us that you will in fact face trouble. He's he's a promise, but he also promises us to take heart because he has overcome the world. And the reminder that we have when we are all looking to Jesus is we get to look to him, see how good he is, and then look at each other and say, have you seen how good he is? And that's the beauty and, and one of the reasons why Jesus says, do this together. There's no such thing as lone wolf Christianity. It's not a thing. He, when you get to know his heart, you're gonna recognize that his heart beats for others, not just you, but also for others. And so this is the power of the local church. In fact, the local church goes so much deeper, and even generationally, I believe, there's such power in this. Um, This morning, obviously, we're going to be talking about anxiety. We've come to the passage in the Sermon on the Mount on anxiety, and as we were singing the song earlier, Raise a Hallelujah, I had actually forgotten about this. Um, I was reminded that a couple years ago, my grandmother, uh, in her 90s, Um, She hands me a framed prayer, you know, and it's like Southern grandma framed prayer thing, you know, and I'm like, oh, great. My wife's like, great. uh, uh, Well, you know, this is very stylish, you know, Um, but she hands me a framed prayer and she says, my friend prayed this over me years ago and gave this to me. And she, she had given this prayer to her and it was signed um, and the last name of the lady Uh, who was her age, lived in Randleman, North Carolina, middle of nowhere, North Carolina. Her last name was Helser. It's interesting. And so I'm like, okay, great. Thankful for this prayer that this lady's praying over our family. And then my cousin pulls me aside and says, that's Jonathan Helser's grandma. Jonathan Helser's the one that wrote that song, Raise a Hallelujah. Isn't that cool? I think that's cool. I, I like the way that God works even generationally in our lives. And that's just a little snippet of seeing the way that he is moving and the way that he calls his people to pray for one another and to move in power. And, and, and I just love it. So um, this morning, again, we, we are continuing through our summer series through the summer, Sermon on the Mount. 
um, which is, again, the greatest sermon ever preached um, because it's actually the most in-depth sermon that Jesus ever preached. And so we're gonna, we have come to this portion of a sermon where he specifically addresses anxiety. And so anxiety has always been pretty relevant. Like I think sometimes people think that we're the only society that has ever dealt with anxiety, right? Which is not true. There's a reason Jesus addressed this particular topic 2,000 years ago, okay? Um, but it's also true that the Sermon on the Mount speaks to a topic that is particularly kind of rampant in our society. I mean, the statistics are pretty crazy. As I was reading the statistics on anxiety, I felt like I was getting anxiety. Right? I mean, especially recently, the numbers are around 25% higher than they were just 25 years ago on people experiencing anxiety and depression. According to the stats, one in three adults experience anxiety and depression. Some of the stats even say that it's as high as 50% of young adults between the ages of 18 and 24 experience anxiety and depression. 50, that's half. That's radical. 10 years ago, over 10 years ago, I was a young adults pastor. It was prevalent then. It's way more prevalent, I think, now. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I think we can't blame it all on COVID. <laughs> um, there's a lot going on, I think, in society and I think the way that we are perceiving things. And, and as a result of this being a major topic, there's a big conversation in our society surrounding anxiety. So much so that it's easy to get, again, overwhelmed by it all. And so, uh, some of you may even be like, oh, great, another sermon on anxiety. We've heard so much about this. But what I want you to see is what Jesus has to say about anxiety, okay? So there's so much stuff that's really helpful. But the more that I look at the topic on anxiety and the different approaches to anxiety, the more I appreciate the way Jesus talks to us about anxiety. And he gets to the heart of it. Now, I'm thankful for the conversation. I'm thankful for the help. And I believe that we can learn a lot from each other in this world. But ultimately, we, we, we filter it all through what the Word of God says and, and, and how He calls us to approach it. Now, as a dad uh, of three little kids, um, there was a, a, a term thrown around when they were very, very small. And some of you parents probably heard this. Um, called separation anxiety. Have you ever heard of separation anxiety? Right? It's, it's an anxiety that we have all at some point in our lives experienced because it's a normal part of life. It's essentially the anxiety that a child experiences when they're separated from their parents, especially early on, right? Just when they first sleep in a different room even. That's why they cry, 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 cry. This is why uh, when you leave a child in the nursery and he's like, no! Anybody experience that, right? And you're like, shut the door. Get the child off my leg. It's a normal part. You guys are like, you kick your children? No, I'm not. <laughs> but this is, this is a normal part of life for anyone, for all of humanity. It's basically a child learning to have faith. I mean, think about it. Like, just because they can't see their mom or dad right in that moment doesn't mean they'll never see that parent again. That's not what it means. This is what they're learning. Like, they're learning that you love them, 
and that they can trust you and they can have faith in your return. And because of that faith, they develop hope that allows them to rest even in the present moment. Even when it doesn't feel like you're coming back, they can rest because they have confidence that you have not forsaken them and you will indeed return. So this morning, Jesus is going to lay out for us a reasonable, say reasonable, a reasonable approach to the issue of anxiety by showing us that all anxiety is actually, ultimately, a form of separation anxiety from our Heavenly Father. Because of sin, there is a mountain of separation between the Holy Creator God and sinful humanity, which is all of humanity. It's like a a mountain that separates the heavens from the earth. You got the image of the big mountain? I've told you before that this is a prevalent theme throughout the scriptures, that mountains represent separation, distance from God. To meet with God, you got to climb a mountain. It's a lot of the theme in the scriptures. Like Moses in Mount Sinai, Elijah on Mount Horeb, or even God's chosen people in the the Old Testament, they had to ascend Mount Zion to present their sacrificial lambs in this temple that was on top of a mountain in order to meet with the very presence of God in the Holy of Holies. It's this idea that even saturates the pagan world too. It's not just a, a biblical thing. It's an idea that is in the heart of all humanity and all over the world and all kinds of cultures. Wherever there's a tall mountain in the area, there is a myth or an idea that the gods are at, they reside at the top of that mountain. If you want to meet with the gods, you climb the mountain. Like Zeus, right? And all the other Greek gods and Greek mythology, they lived atop Mount Olympus. And to be in their presence, to achieve greatness, you got to climb. It's not a coincidence that the world's ultimate tests of human strength and achievement are called the Olympics. Chasing that gold, right? Then I'll be something. And I'm not saying that they're all idolaters, <laughs> right? But you get the idea. Again, mountains have been viewed as barriers between heaven and earth. It's part of the reason for the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Humanity's trying to reach heaven in their own strength to be God, to be where God is, to get there in their own ingenuity, in their own power. It's the reason behind all the ancient ziggurat structures. That's a great word, right, ziggurat? It's like the pyramids, the Mayans, the Egyptians. These are man-made mountains to reach the gods. Moses in the Old Testament, he goes up Mount Sinai to meet with God, and God gave him these Ten Commandments, the law. Now, nobody else was even able to come touch the mountain, much less climb it. And when Moses comes back down, he brings the law of God, essentially saying, this is the standard. You want to be where God is, you got to live up to this. In order to obtain heaven, you must perfectly obey each one of these commandments. Have fun. The mountain of separation is like the law itself. We're unable to climb it, unable to keep it. It's a symptom of the mountain of separation between humanity and God. And the harder you climb, the more you realize it's just weighing on you. It's just heavy. Like inevitably, there's going to be a rock slide and you're going to find yourself at the bottom. And so this morning, I want you to see that this mountain of separation is the ultimate source of all our anxiety. 
No matter how hard we try, we can't get up the mountain. We can't make it to God. No matter how much money we make, no matter how moral or ethical or law-abiding we try to be, you can't do it. Eventually, it's going to wear you down. It's going to weigh on you like a mountain of anxiety on your chest. And humanity comes up with all kinds of coping mechanisms for this. Even excuses for why we can't make it up the mountain or even pretending that we have. Deep down, we know actually what we're doing is just comparing it to other people who aren't as far up the mountain as us. And that pride goes before a fall. But the good news, and I mean like the gospel good news, is that God himself has come down from the heavens in Christ and made a way. This is the gospel. In John 1, 51, Jesus even introduces himself to his disciple Nathaniel as the ultimate stairway or ladder between heaven and earth. He is the mountain. He is the one that, he was not the mountain of separation, he's the mountain of connection. He is the stairway to heaven. And unlike what Led Zeppelin believes, it's not heroin, it's Jesus. Right? So here's what I want you to get this morning. If you get nothing else, here's what I want you to get. The mountain of anxiety is uprooted through faith in Christ. Seems simple. I'm going to show you that it is actually a profound truth. The mountain of anxiety is uprooted. Not just removed, uprooted. Gets deep down into your heart and gets the, 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 the roots of it that have clung deep into your soul uproots. Faith in Christ uproots that. And even throws it into the sea of destruction and chaos. So the mountain of anxiety is uprooted through faith in Christ. So we couldn't make it to God, but God has come to us, and in Christ, he uproots the effects of this mountain by giving us our true value, our true future, and our true purpose. And so as a quick roadmap for the rest of our time, that's what we're going to walk through. Uh, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to walk through this passage, and we're going to look at, first, the effects this mountain has, uh, or the effects this mountain, can't talk, the effects that this mountain of separation has on humanity. And then, uh, we're going to let Jesus show us where our true value comes from, what our true future looks like, and what our true purpose is. And so, the effects of the mountain of separation, true value, true future, and true purpose. All right? And then we're going to close with some practical ways to live uh, each day in the faith that uproots this mountain of anxiety. And so, let's dive in. Matthew 6, 25. Turn with me there. and We're going to start with the effects of the mountain of separation. Verse 25 says this, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now, some might say, I'm not really that concerned with those things I've got. I live in a Western society where we have access to all of these things, right? And yet, we are dealing with anxiety more than, like, any time in history. Which means these things represent something way deeper. Like, this is a good question. 
It's a rhetorical question, but it's one so many people never even think about. Is there more to this life than feeding our stomachs, covering our vulnerabilities, and looking good in front of others? Is there more to this life than that? The answer is yes, right? Yes, there is more. There is way more. But before we get into that, we've gotten a little ahead of ourselves here because this passage opens with therefore, okay? And whenever you see the word therefore in scripture, you should ask, what's the therefore? Therefore, what's the therefore, therefore, right? So let's go back a verse to verse 24, Matthew 6, 24. We talked about this last week. So what's the therefore, therefore? Well, verse 24 says this. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious. It's interesting. Again, serving the master of money is a major result of this mountain of separation. The need for resources to care for yourself and have no need of God is a direct symptom of the distance from God that we feel as a loving, providing father. That obsession with getting it yourself and having no need of anyone, including God, is a symptom of feeling the distance between you and him. Money then becomes master. Our place of security, provision, approval, even comfort. It's a counterfeit God, and it's extremely deceptive. In fact, it's really just an unclimbable mountain and a cruel master. Right? The truth is, when money is your master and your life is leveraged in serving the God of money, it's just a symptom of your desire to control the world around you and be God yourself. After all, with enough money, you can be the master of your own fate, right? But when's it ever enough? The effect of this mountain of separation is what, it's that feeling that we're on our own. Left to fend for ourselves, we're vulnerable and we're out of control. It's up to you and only you. Nobody's going to help you. In fact, they're going to likely just try to take it from you. If you don't go get it, it ain't coming. So you got to look out for number one, right? Which is you. Isn't that how this world operates? This is the heart behind greed and coveting and envy and fear and insecurity and all these things. Like if I can just earn this much, if I can just get this much, if I can just climb that mountain, get to that place, impress those people, maybe get married, have some kids, then I'll have peace, then I'll have rest, then I'll have wholeness. But it's not true, is it? None of that stuff is going to fully, there's never enough money, never enough success, never enough achievement. That mountain is always higher than you think, always. True blessing, true strength, true purpose, it comes from finding true value in Christ and in Christ alone. No spouse is going to bring it to you. No kid is going to bring it to you. No job, no money, nothing. Christ alone, that's it. But that begins with recognizing your need and not your self-sufficiency. It's why Jesus began his sermon in chapter 5 saying, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So only the poor poor in spirit come to realize that there is no amount of pride or self-mustered ambition and grit that can get you to the top. Inevitably, 
all who make that journey find themselves crushed under the weight of that mountain. Inevitably. The, the, the great reformer of the 16th century, Martin Luther, he had a friend who was a prominent leader also in the Reformation, which changed the face of Western civilization. Um, these guys were working pretty hard, okay? And they had a lot of pressure and there was a lot going on and they were leaning in hard. And Luther had a friend again, his name was Philip Melanchthon, also a prominent leader in the Reformation. And Philip often struggled with anxiety and depression and Luther's encouragement to him was not what you would expect. If you, if you know much about Martin Luther, you might expect this. But I, it's not what most people think of when someone's struggling with anxiety and depression. This is not really the words that you would expect. You'd probably think, like, it's going to be okay. You're all right. Everything's fine. That's not what Luther said. <laughs> Luther's words to him were, let Philip cease to rule the world. Let Philip cease to rule the world. And his words were dead on. Because laced within the throes of all anxiety is an attempt to control the uncontrollable and obtain the throne that only belongs to God. And hear me, you are a horrible God. But the good news is that God is God and he's really good at it. And we're not. God has come to us in Christ. The God atop the mountain has descended from on high, from the heavens, and he invites us to himself. This is the gospel, that God became a man, and he lived the life we couldn't live, and he died the death we deserved to die, and he conquered death in the grave, and he paved the way to eternal life through the resurrection, and it's an eternal life that doesn't just start one day when we die. It doesn't just like hold on, grit it out, figure it out, and wait because one day I'll experience his presence and goodness. No. Faith in what he has done at the cross and through the resurrection is faith that the mountain has been removed, that the veil has been split, and that his presence is available to you even now in the Holy Spirit. This is the gospel. And so we need the reminder to stand upon what is true by faith, even now, especially when our feelings lie to us and tell us that things aren't as we know them to be. That is anxiety. That's where it comes from. And so look at verse 26, Matthew 6, verse 26. Look at the birds of the air, Jesus says. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? So, so here, with the mountain under his feet, Jesus invites us to reason with him. He continues in a string of rhetorical questions. Reasonable questions. Say reasonable. And, and this is intentional because when anxiety hits and we feel the distance from God and that freak out feeling drops, we start grasping for control, Jesus' words of reason, very needed. See, Jesus is telling us how to live in a kingdom that has been inaugurated spiritually, but not yet physically. This is why we walk by faith and not by sight. 
Because if you just rely on what you see physically and the circumstances that surround you and how you feel in the moment, you're going to have an anxiety attack in this world. In other words, we live now in the already not yet overlap of the kingdom. Jesus rules and reigns spiritually, but physically, the physical kingdom of heaven will not be fully manifest on the earth until his return. In the meantime, we've got some separation anxiety issues. And so we live in the dawn of the new day, but it's still kind of nighttime, right? Like it's, it's the already not yet, which means we must live by faith. It means we have to remember that while the feeling of distance lingers, it's no longer true. Jesus split the veil, and he's now closer in spirit than ever before, closer to us than our own skin. These are the kingdom values that Jesus is teaching us in this sermon. And so there on this mountain that spanned the distance between heaven and earth, Jesus invites us to come and reason with him. And he says, look at the birds of heaven. Look at the birds of the heavens. Look how your heavenly father takes care of them. And yet they're not made in his image. You are. There's even potentially an allusion here to angels. Even those heavenly creatures are not made in God's image. You are. Which leads us to our next section, true value. And I'm not talking about an advertisement at a discount grocery store, okay? I'm talking about that true value. That's like a discount cheap thing. This is more of like a your value. You are expensive. How many of you know that you are extremely expensive? And Jesus paid a heavy price for you. He values you. Do you believe that God values you? That's a good question. Do you believe it? I didn't ask you if you felt it. I'm asking you if you believe it. Which leads us to, again, like when you live under the crushing weight of that mountain, when you've experienced the distance and the struggle that's defined by your own achievements or your subsequent failures, when that's the way you've lived your life in this world, then that mountain will lie to you and tell you you are worthless. Or even worth more, depending on how well you climb. It'll measure you by your ability to climb and shame you in the fall and tell you you're all alone. Nobody will care for you because nobody values you enough to care. If you can't control it, then it's out of control and you're unsafe. This is the voice of anxiety. In some, it manifests in depression and despair. In others, it manifests in anger and obsession over things like work and success. Guess what? The root is all that anxiousness. Just because you're like angry all the time, that doesn't mean you're not dealing with anxiety. It's just how you're dealing with anxiety. Like Bruce Wayne in The Dark Knight Rises. You remember this? He's stuck in a pit with a broken back. He's been beaten, defeated. And he's sitting there. He can't climb out. He can't get out. And this old man in the pit says that his issue is fear. And Bruce says, I'm not afraid. I'm angry. But the truth was, his anger was just his way to cope with his childhood fear. I got to squeeze a Dark Knight reference in there somewhere, right? But Jesus says here, right? He says, and know how you feel. 
I know how you feel, but come and reason with me now. Whether you're hopeless or just angry, your anxiety does nothing to help you. And in truth, it only shortens your life. The real question, the question we most avoid in these moments is, do you believe you're valuable to God? He doesn't ask if you're valuable to yourself. This is important. That's a counterfeit question. He's not asking you how much self-esteem you have. That honestly doesn't matter. He's asking you, do you believe he values you? That's the only thing that really matters. Do you believe God values you? Do you believe he actually cares for you? That's all that matters, and that's how that mountain of anxiety gets uprooted. See, faith isn't about your feelings. Faith is about what you believe to be true, what you live by. That's the old English word, believe. It means this is what I live by. By this I live. What do you live by? Faith is not about your feelings. Faith is about what you believe to be true. Jesus says, come and reason with me. Look at me, not your emotions, not your achievements, not your accomplishments. Come and reason with me and stop acting like a slave. Come to me and receive me by grace. Receive, excuse me, my grace by faith, not achievement, not works. Grace alone by faith alone in Christ alone. Come and rest. That mountain of anxiety and separation will tell you that your value is in your ability or inability to climb. It'll even tell you to be anxious about your anxiety and depressed about your depression. It'll tell you you're worth less because you have that struggle. Like that's the level that it will lie to you and you have an enemy that will try to define you just because of hearing his voice. But Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you shame. Mm -mm. No, that's not at all what he says. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But if you've been climbing that mountain for too long, you know what you're going to hear? Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I'm going to shame you for a little bit and then, and then maybe, once you've groveled enough, then I'll give you rest. What? No. Right in the midst of the journey, even on this side of eternity, he will give you rest. How? Why? Because in Christ, the verdict comes before the evidence. It's upside down. Because it's not about what you can do. It's about what's been done for you in Christ. That's the faith that uproots that mountain of anxiety and separation and throws it into the sea. And even if it doesn't dissipate in your physical emotions or feelings, it doesn't make it any less true. And the more you stand on that truth by faith, the more those feelings will crumble. But it, even if it doesn't, it doesn't make it any less true. See, it's okay to not feel okay because you're not saved by grace through feelings. You're saved by grace through faith. Okay? Your value is not determined by your feelings or whether or not you got that breakthrough. Your value is determined by who he says you are and he says you're valuable and I've proven it. Valuable enough to leave heaven and endure the shame of the cross with joy because to him, you are the pearl of great price, a price he was willing to pay. So let's be reasonable. Say, be reasonable. Be reasonable. 
Maybe you don't feel loved or valued or valuable or cared for. When the pressure gets turned up and the darkness comes in and the difficulty hits, you're not going to feel it. You're just not. And because you don't feel it, that doesn't, that's not a sign of immaturity, guys. That's a sign that you live on this side of eternity. That's what that is. And so Jesus says, walk by faith. That's when we stand on his promise. That's when we remember in the dark what we heard in the light. That's when we walk by faith and not by sight, whether we feel it or not. I'm not downgrading feelings. God, I pray that you feel it. I mean, feel it. There's so much to that. Like, pray that you, should, you would feel it. Like, what well, a great prayer is to say, God, this is how I feel, and here's how I want to feel. Help me feel that. That's a great prayer. Identify what you're feeling, and then ask God for how you want to feel, but say, I know, confess what's true even in the midst of it. Amen? And that's when we take heart. And that's when we trust in Jesus, not ourselves or our circumstances. That's when we kick the devil right in the teeth, even in the presence of our enemy. Like right in the middle of the valley, in the shadow of death, we can fear no evil. Why? Because he's with me. How do I know? Because I feel it? No, because I'm reasonable, because I have faith, because I'm standing on something way more substantial than my feelings. When you're in a deep valley, think about this. When you're in a deep valley, like the valley of the shadow of death, when you're in that place, it means you're in the shadow of a mountain. And you can't see the sun. It's dark. So how do we get rid of the mountain? Jesus is saying you don't have to climb up the mountain in order to find peace. Because I've come down. I'm with you. Even in the mountain, even in the valley, I'm with you. God with you, Emmanuel. Why do I, how do I not fear evil? Because I'm with you. I'll lead you through it. Trust me, fear not. Say, be reasonable. Even in the fear, even in the depression, even in the darkness, God is not distant. God is not far. He is close and he's compassionate and he understands and he knows. I mean, he knows in a way that you cannot even fathom. He understands it. He's not distant even emotionally. He gets it. He gets it so much. He knows what it's like to walk the earth. He knows what it's like to pass through the valley of the shadow of death. He knows what that shadow of the mountain of separation is like. The Garden of Gethsemane where he sweat blood and he prayed, God, this cup pass from me as he's about to be crucified. You know where he was? He was at the foot of the Mount of Olives. He was in that shadow place. But where we fell short, Jesus trusted. Where we cut and ran, Jesus endured. Where we distrusted and ran to our own ways, Jesus pressed in. He knows what it's like to die and be buried in the earth like a seed. But he also knows what it's like to rise from the earth and burst forth in glory. And because he did, he has secured that as the future for all who would place their faith in what he's done. 
And so he reasons with us and he speaks into our true value and our true future, which is the next section here. Verse 28. He says, so, and, and why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? See, the mountain of separation and anxiety, it'll cast a shadow vision on your future. Like it'll lie to you and present a future without God in it. Think about that. Like when you're anxious, part of it is you're thinking about a future, but that future has no sense of God's provision or sovereignty in it. It's a future that's all up to you, right? A world where the worst possible outcome is the only option unless you control the narrative. So it's all up to you. Unless you toil and spin, you're going to enter the future vulnerable and exposed, naked and ashamed. And listen, outside of Christ, that is our future. That's not a lie. Because the only one who can clothe us, the only one who can present us, the only one who can cover us is Christ alone. Like outside of Christ, our future is a future without God in it. It's a future, an eternity of nakedness, shame, exposure, and forsakenness. That is the choice we make when we sin. And then our go-to move is to try and cover it with achievement to try to earn our way back, climb that mountain. And the result then is always anxiety. It may even look good at first, right? Like Adam and Eve, after they bit the apple in the garden and they realized they were naked and, and they, they had shame, what do they do? They dress themselves in fig leaves. Those fig leaves probably looked pretty good at first. Nice and green, right? But they were detached from the vine. They were disconnected from the source. And what happens to a leaf that's disconnected from the source and detached from the vine. It rots. It withers. It gets putrid. It gets disgusting. This is what they tried to clothe and cover themselves in. Temporary fig leaves detached from the vine. And they're going to soon rot, wither, become putrid because they're no longer connected to the source our best efforts to cover ourselves are like rotting fig leaves and filthy rags. So God tells them to sacrifice an animal and clothe themselves in its skin to cover their shame and nakedness with the death of another. Way back in Genesis, it was a foreshadowing of what Jesus, the ultimate sacrificial lamb of God, would do for us all. When we place our faith in his sacrifice and resurrection, we become washed in his blood and clothed in his righteousness. You're toiling and you're spinning. They can't cover you. If that's your covering, it's going to rot away. But in Christ, our covering, our clothing, our righteous apparel comes from God himself and it's everlasting. And some seriously radiant robes. So in case you missed it, Jesus here is alluding to something way deeper than just fashion, <laughs> okay? Jesus says, your future is secure in me. Consider the flowers. Like that area of Israel is still actually famous for the way wildflowers seem to just spring up out of nowhere after a rain. 
And they blanket the rolling hills in scarlet red and white and even purple. It's beautiful. It's actually illegal even to pick these flowers now because they've become so sought after and precious in Israel, especially since the, they only bloom for a short amount of time. They're kind of up one day and then they're gone the, the next. And they suddenly appear and then they're gone. So Jesus says here, not even the great kings like Solomon, even his robes couldn't compare. And yet their glory, these flowers, their glory is fleeting. Here today, gone tomorrow. But for those who are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, your future is secure. There's a statement here. Take heart. Take courage. Have faith even in the valley, even in the shadow of that mountain. Don't forget in the dark what you heard in the light. You have a future that goes way beyond this life. 31, verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Again, he's addressing a state of being rather than a feeling. Jesus knows these feelings will assault us in this world. And he's equipping us here with the tools of truth to combat those lies. He says, come consistently and come faithfully to me and reason with me. If your Father is in heaven, and your treasure is in heaven, and your reward is in heaven, then anxiety has no real authority over you. It might come yapping at you, but it has no real authority over you. Don't believe the lies of that mountain. Don't believe the lies about your value, your future. And finally, don't believe the lies about your true purpose. Because that mountain of separation, that mountain of anxiety, it's going to try to pervert your God-given purpose. Verse 32, for the Gentiles or the godless nations seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Got a question for you. Very important question. Does God care more about the things you're seeking in life than you do? That's an important question. Does God, because there are some things that we seek God doesn't care about. Does God care more about the things you're seeking, even serving in your life, than you do? It's a great question. Or do you think of God the way the pagans think of the gods? Distant and indifferent. Like, is your prayer life an attempt to catch his attention and win his favor to align with your kingdom values? That's how pagans operate. They strike deals with the gods to tell them to build their own personal kingdoms on earth and make them feel like, make us feel like we're progressing further and further up that mountain of pride. And I'm going to tell you something. Demons are happy, happy to help you climb a mountain that keeps you away from God. Jesus confronts the root of our anxiety here and he asks, whose kingdom are you seeking and serving? This is a callback to verse 24 here about not being able to serve both God and money. It's, if it's God, then rest comes easy. No matter what comes or how it feels, it can be well with your soul. Even when you fall short because the living, sovereign creator of the universe cares more about it than you do. When you come to grips with that realization, it informs the way you pray. It doesn't mean you pray less. 
He's, it, it actually means, okay, I recognize who he is, and he's called me to ask, so I'm pressing in. Because he holds it all in his hands. But the way we pray becomes more about his timing and for his glory than just what we want in the moment. We pray in a way that's oriented towards aligning with his heart and building his kingdom, and it changes things. I mean, think about it. Like, Why would God bless you with something that's just going to add distance from him in your life and anxiety to your life? That wouldn't be a blessing. It'd be a curse, right? Like your good sovereign father in heaven cares too much about you to answer a prayer that's basically just about helping you climb a little higher up on your anxiety mountain. (laughs) So your enemy is happy again to bless you with those things because it keeps you on that mountain and even crushed under it. But Jesus says, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and everything else will be added to you because it's the best thing for you. Because I care about you. I actually love you. I have good things for you. So what breakthroughs are you praying for? I I, I hope you are praying for breakthroughs in life. What kind of breakthroughs are you praying for? Like what miracles are you hoping for? What walls are you praying would come down? I hope you are praying for walls to come down in your life and the lives around you. Because this thing is a battle. But a battle for what? A battle for what kingdom? If every prayer you prayed this week was suddenly answered, whose kingdom would grow? Think about that. Like how many people would come to salvation in Christ this week if suddenly every prayer you prayed this week was answered? Like it really boils down to this. If every prayer you prayed this week were answered, would you be more in love with Jesus? Would the people around you be more in love with Jesus? Or would you and they all be more in love with this world? Listen, this is not about planning. It's not not about not planning anyway. This is not about being lazy and just being like, okay, whatever, God. This is actually just the opposite. This is actually a call to plan and pray and strategize and to do so with the priority of his kingdom and the Great Commission in mind. To align and leverage your life for the purpose and glory that's way beyond any one of us. And so there's a difference between those who are driven and those who are called. We've talked about this before. Like the driven person is motivated by fear of failure and the pride of achievement. That anxiety and depression is just howling at your door when that's what your life is like. But the called life is different. There's the driven life and then there's the called life. The called life toils and spins and sows and reaps not to gain salvation, but because they've tasted his glory and believe he's worth it. The called life is a life of worship. The called life plans, strategizes, works hard, not so they can be worthy, but because he is. The called life is a life called to worship, not worry. But the life of worship isn't lazy. It's a life leveraged for his glory. The scriptures are clear in their warnings against laziness, right? Um, The called life, it's even leveraged for the kingdom of heaven. And yet, hear this, Even when you leverage every ounce of your life for the kingdom of heaven, it doesn't make you immune to anxiety. Not at all. In fact, 2 Corinthians 11, 28, Paul even admits the daily pressure he feels of the anxiety he has for all the churches. The apostle Paul. And as a pastor, I get that. I I mean, on one level, I know that God cares about these things way more than I do, right? Like he's got it. 
He's got you. He's sovereign and he's good and he's caring. But it's one thing to think that and it's another to actually take it all to him in prayer. So again, this is not a call to check out and just ride. This is a call to press in and pray. Because ultimately, that's the only way to relieve the pressure valve of anxiety. It's in prayer, in every moment, on the daily. Verse 34. Final verse. Therefore, you see the reason? A lot, therefore, a lot of therefores, right? This is very reasonable. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Again, not letting anxiety tell you all about a future without God in it, but leaning into him in the present and taking each issue before him in prayer. Because sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus doesn't say you won't have trouble and you won't have to navigate anxiety. He says be reasonable and don't give in to it. Deal with it by taking it to the Lord, not just thinking about it and turning it all over in your mind right? We tend to do that. That's not praying. That's just called thinking. (laughs) That's called ruminating. That feeds anxiety. Be reasonable. Take it to him and say, God, I trust you. I can't deal with this, this mountain. I'm just going to, I trust you. I have faith in you. So here, take it. That's how we release it. I'm talking about taking the trouble of the day to him, that day in prayer and entrusting it to him in prayer. Philippians 4, 5 through 7 says this, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Say, be reasonable. The Lord is at hand. That means he's reachable, okay? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So this is all a part of the process of growing up in our faith. All a part of it. Like earlier in this uh, passage, verse 30, Jesus even referred to his disciples as you of little faith. That literally means baby faith, immature faith, right? Faith that still needs to grow up. And so this is an area that may be difficult for you. It may be difficult for all of us on some level, but if that's you and you find this whole thing very difficult, it doesn't mean that you're not saved. It just means that you, along with me and the apostle Paul, still have some growing up to do in the faith. Okay? And so this is, as the story of the disciples progresses, what we're going to see is that these same people that he says, you got baby faith to here, He says that these infants in the faith, as Jesus referred to them, they're going to grow and mature to a faithful stature through whom Jesus changes the course of history and inaugurates the kingdom of heaven. These same people. But here Jesus speaks both tenderly and pointedly, saying, trust in me to value you and to provide for you and to give you purpose. And trust in me to do the same for those who are praying who you're praying for, not just in the way that you want or the way you think that they or you deserve, but in the abundance that he knows we all need. Like, don't pray these little tiny little prayers. Pray big, man. Like, too often we think about praying for God's timing and will when we think of it in terms of scarcity, right? Like, as if God's holding out on us because his resources are limited. Guys, that's how the Gentiles pray. <laughs> that's how the, the, the pagans and don't, that don't think that they have a father who loves them in heaven pray. They think he's just holding out on them. 
Like we think if I pray your will be done in your timing, that God's going to come through at the very last minute and just barely. Oh, you of little faith. How many know that God's always on time? Some of you are like, I don't know. (laughs) At times, it may seem like what he's doing is delayed. But that's because he's not focused on your kingdom. He's focused on his. And that's the best thing for you. And so in that process, though, I want you to catch this. He's delivering you and he's drawing you near and he's maturing your faith and he's increasing your capacity for his goodness and his glory. He's doing something abundant even in the meantime, even in the waiting room and the difficulty and the shadow of that mountain, even in the affliction, he is preparing for you a weight of glory. He's doing something that you wouldn't even believe even if somebody told you. He's taking you from an infant to a mature adult in faith. And as he does, he's establishing his kingdom in and through you in a way that transcends heaven and earth and even brings heaven to earth. So in the meantime, on this side, in the already not yet, in the dawn, we stand on his promises and his faithfulness. We trust in him. And we draw near in prayer. Let's pray.